the, there's no point in consuming all this knowledge if you don't do anything with it. Yeah, exactly. so like, yeah. So I, I try to think of it. You know, I can write about it. I can apply it to my own work. And then, you know, because you're consuming so much, at some point, unconsciously, you start to like incorporate these ideas. You know, we're talking about you know ideas that have been sort of things that I've been exposed to over five, six years. Like Ryan Holiday, I learned about the network card system. Tiago taught me about Second Brain, and then layer on top of that a book that I read called The Organized Mind, and that's how I can talk to you about this because I think about it from context of each of those three inputs, and then apply it to my own life um, or to my own projects. So, yeah. Welcome back to the Max Out Show, where today I'm joined by Serene Rao, a storyteller and host of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where he's learned from the most creative people alive. He's the best-selling author of multiple books on reclaiming your creativity, and that's exactly what we'll talk about today, how to pursue your own definition of success and make your childhood dreams come true in adulthood. So Serene, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited to have you, and I really want to start out with, with how your definition of success evolved over time. And so can you take us back a couple, couple of years and even a decade from now and to really the beginning of your career when you're still chasing those really traditional measures of success? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that this is, this is actually really interesting because I've been writing about this idea of, of you know, behaviors versus outcomes, and I think like most people, I, you know, started this out with, you know, goals and um, first, you know, I, I actually didn't start with the intention of, you know, building an audience or building a business or any of that. Uh, I started my first blog because I was trying to find a job and I wanted to stand on the job market. And this was 2009 when, you know, the job market was kind of in shambles. Uh, but, you know, kind of what's interesting is that you have this sort of one definition of what it means to be successful uh, when you start. And for me as a blogger with, you know, uh, very little few readers and um, sort of lingering in obscurity, like the definition of success was, oh, an audience and a book deal with a publisher. So a lot of people think that that's the, the sort of end game. But I think what ends up happening when you actually, you know, reach that goal uh, there are two things that happen. One is that your goalpost for success inevitably evolves, and that's because of what's known as hedonic adaptation. So you get a book deal, and you basically what, what ends up happening is your reference group changes. So prior to getting a book deal, your reference group is all people who didn't have book deals. So now you're no longer one of those people. So your basis for comparison now becomes other published authors. And instead of getting a book deal, it's, you know, hey, New York Times bestseller, you know, whatever it is. And that's a recipe for disaster in every way possible, but human beings are just hardwired that way. Like our goalposts will continually evolve for what it is. And so I think that, you know, part of this is, is that that definition of what it means to be successful evolves with time for everybody. Um, you know, there's a point at which sort of the traditional markers, like you said, mattered. And of course, those things are not unimportant. They're relevant because, you know, they open doors, they establish your credibility uh, and all of those things. The problem is that if your happiness and fulfillment depends on those things, that's when you get into trouble. And I think that, you know, for me, the the real definition of you know creative success is to reach that point where you find joy in the work, but 
the results of your work don't determine your well-being or your happiness. You know, as Ryan Holiday once said to me, he's like, you know, the that that's just a recipe for profound disappointment because no artist knows how you know her audience will respond to her work. No entrepreneur can predict predict how a market will respond to their product. They only control their behavior, their effort, and all those things. And so part of it is you know detachment, I think. And again, this is really easy to say. It's hard yeah. to do. You know everything, and I think that that's true for any sort of life advice, or whatever. It's still easy to say, hard to do, right? We all know it's like, oh, get back up when you fall, be resilient in the face of adversity. All sounds nice, but it's all easier said than done, and we don't acknowledge that because you know a mentor once told me, he said, when you're having a problem in your life, it's the worst thing in the world because it's happening to you, um, <laughs> even though somebody else may not see it that way. But it's your problem, so you see it as the worst possible thing. So. I think that you know a definition of a success, if anything, is very personal. And if there's one thing that I have to realize, it's that you have to define that for yourself. And uh, I think that that is harder and harder to do because we live in this world where you're inundated with uh, podcasts, like people like me saying things like this on podcasts, and you think, oh, well, that's what it means to be successful. And it's like, no, don't listen to what I have to say. Consider it in the context of your life. This is something I say to every person that asks me for any piece of advice is to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is absolute bullshit, because it <laughs> might be. In the, co in the context of your life, my advice might be nonsense. And that's something that nobody talks about. Like people overlook that because you say, oh, well, this person is an authority figure. This person has, you know, accomplished something I want to accomplish. So if I do exactly what they say, then I'll get the result that they have. And that's not true because you're not them. Yeah, I love Which that. You, you, you talk a lot about also question. really finding your own path, right? Instead of becoming the best, really becoming the only. So yeah. how does that play into it? I mean, again, like I think that the the funny thing is we like this idea of sort of how tos and roadmaps and formulas for okay, follow these you know six steps and then you'll become unmistakable. And I think that that is one thing I realized about you know, you know even writing the first book was that there is no formula, uh, which is largely what the book was about is the fact that you know if you keep just looking to what other people are telling you for this, then you can't really come up with anything original or you know tend to trust your own instincts. So. It comes through, but but if we're going to get tactically, or I'll, I'll kind of walk you through sort of tactically how you might actually go about doing this, while also knowing that nothing here is is set in stone, that you have to be willing to adapt and and modify everything I say to fit con the context of your life, and so. A big part of it starts with experimentation, right? Because we don't really know how, like I said, an audience will respond. We don't even know what we're good at 90% yeah. of the time. Uh, in a million years, you know, the funny story, when people would ask me what I was going to do after business school, I would tell them, I know one thing, it'll have nothing to do with the internet. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, which is, is insane considering what I do for a living. But we have no sense of what we're good at. And so often people will follow trends and say, oh, you know, some online marketer says everybody should start a podcast. So now there are a million podcasts in iTunes and most of them aren't that good because a lot of people didn't do it because they really wanted to. They did it because, you know, of FOMO. It's like, oh, I'm missing out on this bandwagon. So that's the first thing I would say is, you know, get clear on the reasons why you're doing something and go try it before you commit to it. This is another thing uh, because, you know, one of the, the best pieces of advice I ever got was from a woman named Tina, Tina Seeley, who's a professor at Stanford. And, you know, this whole idea of follow your passion, right, is something that people talk about constantly, and it's bullshit. It's nonsense. It's literally the worst advice out there for your career. 
because if people did that, right, there's a Dan Kennedy has this great quote about passion. And he says, you know, I'm passionate about lying in a hammock, eating pizza and betting on horses. He <laughs> says, my passion could multiply for those things and nobody would pay me to do them. And Tina Seeley made a good point. She said, passion follows engagement. And so I think that part of this is trying different things, seeing what you find engaging. And then once you discover what you find engaging, it's about putting in the time and effort to take that from something that you find engaging to something that you're actually good at to then something that you become masterful at. And that's a lengthy process. If you've you know, ever read any of Robert Greene's work, mastery is you know, 10, 15, 20 years in the making, and it doesn't end. That's the thing. Mastery is a lifelong process. You don't ever just say, oh, I'm done. I'm the best in the world at this. I'm an expert. Like That would be like LeBron saying, hey, I don't need to shoot free throws anymore, or I don't need to go to the court anymore because now I've won an NBA championship, so it's safe to say that every time I get on the court, I'll win a championship. That's not true. He has to basically maintain and do the things that have gotten him to where he's at. Um, but then the other thing is to look at point of view, right? It, it, Justine Musk had a really good way of putting this. And she said, if you have a bold and compelling point of view, it'll piss people off. And a lot of people hate that idea because they're so afraid of rocking the boat and so afraid of you know provoking people and, and making them angry. And the thing is that if anything is emotionally resonant, it's inevitably going to be polarizing. You know, you look at Mark Manson's book, The, the Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, right? There are probably a lot of people who hate that book simply oh, yeah. because the word fuck is in the title. <laughs> and he's offended those people, which is fine. If you're not offending somebody, then you're doing something wrong. And, you know, I think that I've seen two extremes with my work. One has been, this is a gift to the world. The other is, this is a disservice to humanity. You talk about <laughs> polar opposites. You know? Wow, yeah. And I'm okay with that uh, because the people who say it's a disservice to humanity, I'm like, great, we're not for you. You know, there's a thousand other shows you could listen to. There's a thousand other podcasts you could subscribe to. I'm not for you. And you have to be okay with that. So that's a big part of this is, you know, being willing to say I'm not for you. But then point of view, I think, is really one of those things that's missing from, you know, people's work. And if you don't have a point of view, it's hard to stand out if you're just echoing and parroting the same bullshit that you hear on, you know, a thousand different shows, like podcasters are notorious for this, where you, you'll often see it's the same guests on the same show saying the same thing a thousand times. And, you know, it's not really, it, it, what's sad about that is that they're stuck in an echo chamber. Um, so they're not actually exposing themselves to new ideas, which takes me to another point. Uh, the more that you can expose yourself to in terms of ideas, insights, and a diversity, right? Because, one thing I saw, and I saw this in my own behavior, was when I first started this, my tendency was to primarily read books about online marketing, blogging, and you know all that, that stuff that people tend to do when they, they start these kinds of things. And then I remember talking to Julian Smith, who had one of the most popular blogs on the internet. And the thing that struck me most about what he said was that he didn't read blogs. Here's a guy wow. with the most popular blog on the internet who doesn't read blogs. And he said, and I only read books and I don't read the books that other people read. And so if you expand, you know, sort of the input that you're taking in and make it more diverse, you get sort of this rich ecosystem. Robert Greene once told me that the analogy is biodiversity, uh, where, you know, the more species you have in an ecosystem, 
the richer that ecosystem becomes. And I think the same thing is true for your input and your media consumption and the knowledge that you're building, because then you're going to have multiple data points to draw from, you know, like on one week, I'll be reading about politics, the next, you know, economics. And if, if you I look at Ryan Holiday's newsletter, the one that he sends out with his monthly reading list, one of the things that's interesting is the diversity of books that he reads. And if you read Ryan's books, it's very clear that he's drawing examples from you know, multiple viewpoints. He can go back two, 300 years, find some historical example, then find some modern day example, and then tie it to a lesson about the obstacle is the way. And that's because I think he exposes himself to, you know, a diversity of ideas. And that's what I think is lacking often when people are trying to figure out how to stand out is they're just exposing themselves to the same types of books, the same types of people going to the same bullshit seminars. And then they're like, why is my work not interesting? It's because you basically are hearing the same thing, consuming the same thing, and then just echoing. It. This is why, you know, I jokingly say that my first book, Unmistakable, could have got just as easily been called Everybody is Full of Shit. Um, <laughs> You know, and so that I think is really, if we're going to get tactical, that's the closest thing to tactical I could offer. And again, I think you'd be an idiot to follow this advice to the letter. I think you should question it and be skeptical about what I'm telling you because it might not work. Yeah, I, I love this. And I mean, there's, there's so much great stuff already that, that I really want to unpack a little bit. Um, and first of all, I want to go back to this, this passion myth, because, because I absolutely agree, right? That that yeah, lying in the hammock, right? If, if that's your big passion, right? Or eating a bunch of junk food or playing video games, it's probably not going to do much of a service to the world. And yeah. so, so what, how much of an, of an aspect does, does this sort of intrinsic joy or this, this ability to get into flow really play then when we're so sort of you, seeking out our zone of genius? Yeah, I mean, you, you hit the nail on the head, right? You've mentioned the word service to the world. And so if you look at people who manage to turn their passion into something that allows them to make money, it's actually not about them. It's about other people and how they help other people. Um, you know, if you look at even anything in, in Ramit's copywriting course material, or even go to his you know website, Growth Lab, every piece of advice about copywriting centers around shift the focus from you to your audience. Um, and this is kind of an interesting you know paradox because I've written a book called Audience of One. So I think that the balancing act is that you have to be excited enough about this thing that you know it, because if you're not excited about it, then it's a tall order to think that anybody else will be. Yeah. Uh, so when you are going through the, if you're just going through the motions because somebody else said you should do it, or you think it's going to lead somewhere, then that's going to come through in the work. Like it will just be very obvious that you didn't care about this. Uh, and that's, you know, one of those things where you're going to think about. Now, the other thing we have to think about here is skill, right? Just because you're passionate about something, even if there's a market for it, if you have no skill for it or no aptitude for it, then you're going to have a hard time with that. You know, people often will do things that they're terrible at because they think there's a market for it. So let's just use podcasts as an example. And I've written about this somewhere before where, you know, some really amazing, talented, but incredibly introverted artist who can't stand speaking to people says, oh, you know what, I'm going to start a podcast. And then it turns out that she's actually horrible behind the microphone. And now instead of being an extraordinary artist, she's an average at two things instead of extraordinary at one. And so that's that's another thing to think about is, is, do I have any natural aptitude for this? Now, look, I'm not saying that your skills are set in stone. Anybody can learn how to do something and get better at it. But you also have to think about the probability that you're going to succeed at that. So my old mentor, Greg, really had this great distinction between probability and possibility, where he used the examples like, is it probable that you and I could go to the Olympics? Or, you know, for the one I always come back to, is it probable that I could possible that I could play NBA basketball? Yeah. Is it probable? Fuck no. I'm a scrawny Indian person. Like LeBron James probably wouldn't even like stand next to me in a, a game of street ball. 
Um, so that's the other thing that we don't look at here is, is context and, and probability really matter. Uh, I had a lot of advantages that a lot of people don't have and couldn't replicate. I had an amazing mentor who just happened to take me on, who I connected with on Twitter. Um, I had a 10-year head start on something that's become a massive cultural trend, which is a podcast. Uh, you know, I was raised by Indian parents who instilled rigid discipline. Like those things matter. And people hate the idea that all those things matter because those are factors that you can't replicate. Uh, but the thing that you can replicate is the behavior and you can replicate, you know, the, the willingness to put in the work, but you don't want to overlook those kinds of things that you, you know, really could determine because otherwise you're going to spend years on something that is actually going to lead nowhere without being honest with yourself about, you know, what you're good at and what you're not. Look, I write, I'm an average writer at best. And the only reason I write anything worth reading is because I write a lot. Um, yeah, I've gotten to wow. publish books and publisher, but I'm not James Clear. I'm not Mark Manson. You know, like I, those guys are far better writers than I am. Clearly, all you have to do is look at the book sales. And for me, I know that I'm far better at interviewing than I am at writing because the numbers speak for themselves. Uh, so it's kind of knowing, you know, what it is that you really have the potential to be great at uh, is really what I would look at rather than just saying, OK, passion. And then I'll, I'll sum this up with one final example about, you know, businesses and, and passion need to be being need to be market driven. So Sonia Simone from Copy Blogger um, calls this the naked mole rat problem. Right. And there are people who have interest in all sorts of weird shit. And yeah, there's a truth to the fact that no matter what you're interested in, you know, even if it's underwater basket weaving or killing an endangered species, there's probably a community for that. Not that you should kill an endangered species. But, you know, I was thinking about the movie Basketball, where there's a scene where some kid who was the Make-A-Wish Foundation go, you know, he's a sick kid and Trey Parker and Matt Stone walk in and like what's your dying wish and he's like i'd like to kill an endangered species like a bald eagle <laughs> which is hilarious but you know but the point being there are communities for just about everything but that doesn't mean that those those passions can be monetized right so sonia someone calls us a naked mole rat problem so you know if you have a passion for naked mole rats you could start a blog about it you could create an online course about it your ceiling on that is always going to be limited because the number of people who give a shit about mole rats is pretty limited um, so that, that's, you know, these are sort of contexts to think about when you're thinking about this whole passion idea. Yeah. So how, how do you feel about this, this naked mole rat, red, red life really, right? Or the, sort of the, the starving artist that's, that's doing what he loves, but, yeah. but isn't really, you know, getting sort of the financial rewards, the, the attention and all of that. Do you feel yeah. like also in your life, right? If, if you, you know, you're doing this podcast, but nobody really cared, would it still be worth it to you? <laughs> That's that's a hard. You, so the thing is, it's easy. Like I said, it's really easy for me to, you know, like dish whatever bullshit I have to say here because I'm not in that position anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, so, again, like consider the context from which I'm giving this advice as somebody who has you know spent 10 years building this thing that's doing relatively well that I'm making a living off of it. So it's really hard to say. I think that that really comes back to what we were talking about at the beginning is, you know, if this is solely the reason that you're doing it, then you're already kind of doomed from the start because even, you know, the best artists in the world, everybody starts with zero readers on their blog. Every, you know, business starts with zero customers. And if you don't actually enjoy the process of doing this thing, then really, you know, what's the point? And so, you know, you're, you're bringing up a, a good point though, because People think probably our audience is far bigger than it is. You know, we've been around longer than almost every podcast out there. Like we're one of the first interview-based podcasts, but our audience has grown slower 
and it's smaller than a lot of the people who came after us. And, um, you know, I had to come to terms with that at some point, but I realized where it started to become really rewarding was when I started focusing on the craft. The other thing to think about when you look at these projects that appear to be leading nowhere is what are the sort of positive externalities that come from them, you know, which is a concept from economics, which are, are sort of unintended benefits of some action. So stupid example, uh, when I was studying for an economics midterm in college, there was a girl in my class who was really hot. And so I would study with her and I was like, the positive <laughs> externality of this stupid class is that I get to study with this hot girl. Um, so that's, you know, just in case you don't know what that, the, the terminology, but so there are going to be sort of spillover benefits from doing this, even if it appears to lead nowhere in terms of the outcome that you're seeking. So I'll give you an example. I you know, wrote two books with a publisher. I've not sold enough books uh, or had an idea that's appealing enough to warrant a, a book contract for a third book. But you could just say, oh, great. Well, if I don't get to write books for the rest of my life, what was the point to that? Uh, because, you know, that's ideally what you want. And that's kind of overlooking all the other benefits that came from it. And one of the most invaluable skills that came from writing two books with a publisher was that I can take a vague idea and I can stick with a project long term and I can bring it to life. And I can take that and I can apply it to just about anything. I could go and start a business, you know, in an industry I knew nothing about and take that concept of what I learned from writing books and organize ideas and structure you know, projects and execute because of what I learned from that process. So I think that that's the thing you want to consider when you think about this idea of, you know, sort of the starving artist or maybe things really nowhere. Now, let's talk about the starving artist mindset. You know, Jeff Goins wrote this amazing book called um, A Real Artist Don't Starve. And I've been seeing this in my community, you know, lately as we've been encouraging people in our online program to raise their prices by 20, 30, 40, 50%. And they're all kind of resistant to it at first. And, and then they're kind of shocked when people pay. So I think artists have some sort of stupid, you know, sort of guilt about charging for their work. They feel like they're doing wrong. It's like, oh, I'm selling out. And it's like, okay, great. Do you want to sell out or do you want to be a starving artist? That's the choice you're making. And you're not selling out because you starving yourself to death to you know, serve your audience is actually a disservice to both you and them because at some point you're going to stop making that art and stop start making really crappy art because you're worried about how to survive. And so I think first you got to get over this idea that there's something wrong with being paid for your work. Um, and that's a big one. That's a huge hurdle for people to overcome. Uh, but the way that I, I think to, to best sum that up as was something one of my podcast guests told me, she said, you're always getting paid and you're always getting paid in the currency that you're asking for. And most people are asking for likes on Facebook and likes on Instagram. I like to ask for money. Money is a lot more useful than stupid vanity metrics. Last I checked, my landlord isn't accepting likes and you know hearts for, for rent. And I'm guessing nobody else's is either. So that's something to to give some thought to is, is okay, like what is it about charging for my work that feels off? Like why? Is it up to do I feel like it's not of you know high enough quality? Do I feel like I don't have any value to add? And I, I think the first hurdle for a lot of people, like I remember very distinctly, um, you know, when I was first starting out, there was a guy who used to teach people how to do product launches and he would say, just, you know, start with what he called a mini course, uh, which costs $10 or something like that. Right. And I think the most valuable thing that comes from that is it teaches you that, wow, wait a minute, somebody is willing to pay me for what I do. And I think people are so terrified to ask other people for money, but the, here's this, here's, let's just sum this up, Right. You never go into Starbucks and bitch about the fact that they're charging you for a coffee. 
you expect to pay for coffee because you're running a business. They're, they're running a business. And this is really the way to sum it up. If you are a starving artist, you should get into your head that you're running a business, not a charity, and to start acting like it. Because you have to start thinking less like an artist and more like a business owner. So you want the heart of an artist combined with the mindset of a business owner uh, to get out of that sort of starving artist trap. And look, this, like I said, it's easy for me to say this from the position that I'm in. I'm not, you know, sitting here struggling to, to figure out how to make ends meet. I'm not sitting on a mountain of cash either. Um, but at the same time, I realize that that is often what keeps creatives and, and artists trapped where they're at when it comes to their finances. And all this with the caveat that this is not easy. You know, you're in a situation where nothing is guaranteed and anything is possible. Like what parent do you know that says, hey, you know, I'd love it if you grow up and become an artist, you know, especially <laughs> Indian parents are like, oh, I'd rather you become a doctor or engineer. And yeah. obviously, because those things are secure, like there's nothing secure about being an artist. Uh, you know, and so there is an element of luck involved. And we don't like that. People really hate that. And nobody who actually has done well will talk about the role that luck played in their accomplishments. But, you know, if you haven't watched it, I, you know, for people who are listening to this, go back and watch the interview that David Letterman did on the Netflix show with Barack Obama. And he talks about this, you know, he actually says, and Barack Obama says, you know, I've worked hard in my life. I've, you know, you know, done a lot of things. And, and I've gotten opportunities that a lot of people don't get it, who have worked just as hard, if not harder. And, you know, David Letterman looks at him, uh, and says about his career, Mr. President, I've been nothing but lucky. And, and you think about somebody like Letterman. Of course, he worked hard. And, and so, you know, the you know the harder you work, the more you put yourself out there, the more it's going to increase the odds that that luck will happen. But the thing is, those are the stories you hear about. What you don't hear are the stories of people who busted their asses for years who didn't amount to shit and died penniless and broke. Those stories are real too, and we don't like that idea. So, you know, what you got to realize is you're up against the entire world. You know, William Dershowitz, who wrote a book called The Death of the Artist. Yeah, you know, anybody can start a podcast. Anybody can start a blog. Anybody can put their work online. But the key word there is anybody, which means the whole planet. And that is what you're up against in terms of trying to compete for people's attention. Wow, yeah, it sounds like you really need this, this more wholesome approach, really, of, of looking at life in general, looking at all of the factors that, that yeah. play into success in, in any field, right? And not just these just one or two things that, that we tend to look at in order to really yeah. understand like, hey, there's so much stuff that may potentially help me or may potentially hold me back. Totally, yeah. I mean, I know the, the thing is everybody wants like a, a formula, right? It's like, oh, do this, do this, do X, Y, do X and Y, it will lead to Z. And of course that doesn't work, you know, because no matter what formula you use, there's one variable that's going to throw off the entire formula and that's you. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. Now, I'm, I'm so fascinated, you know, because you know you've been with this the show really and, and this project for the last ten years, and and so many people, you know, when they when they start this new project, right, or like even for myself, right, I started a podcast long before this, right, so two and a half years ago, and, and at some point after like thirty episodes or so, right, back then, like it, it wasn't really getting traction, right, it didn't really improve much, and I sort of lost that fire back then because I was like, ah, it's not really going anywhere. So how do you keep sort of restoking that fire over and over again? How do you keep it burning for 10 yeah. years and, and even longer? <laughs> okay, so this is actually really a good question because this is literally the article that I was writing today. Uh, it's about it. focusing on your behavior more than your outcomes. Uh, you know, we talk about motivation and 
So Teresa Mobilia is a researcher at Harvard and a professor, wrote an amazing book called The Progress Principle. And she talks about the fact that visible progress is one of our biggest sources of motivation. But the problem is that people don't feel like they're making progress because of the way that they're measuring that progress. Now, in your case, let's just go back to you know 30 episodes, whatever. If you're measuring your progress based on downloads and you know the number of people are listening or whatever it is, then you might say, oh, well, I'm hardly progressing at all. But then you could alternatively measure your progress by the number of episodes you produce. You produce 30 episodes. That's more than most people probably do in a year or in a lifetime. There are a lot of people who wouldn't even get close to that. So a lot of people quit because of the way that they're measuring. And so when you actually change the way that you're measuring your progress towards a goal by measuring your behavior instead of measuring against your outcome, that makes it a lot easier to stay motivated because now you're seeing progress. You're like, wait a minute, I just did 30 episodes. Um, this was a big shift for me too, because like yourself, I, I was kind of in a situation, I think it was right around 2013, where, you know, five years of writing, publishing, you know, I was like, my audience isn't growing. I'm like, I still haven't gotten a book deal. Um, that's when I heard about this idea of a thousand words a day. And I realized that was not an outcome. It was a behavior. And that, you know, so the interesting thing is that when you focus on the behavior instead of the outcome, your outcomes might exceed your expectations. I didn't just get a book deal. I ended up self-publishing a Wall Street Journal bestseller and got a six-figure two-book deal with a publisher. Like that was far beyond anything I had expected. And I think it was because I focused on the behavior. And the beautiful thing about your behavior, like you can control how many episodes you decide to publish. You can't control how many people listen to those episodes. Uh, but I, I, you know, I had a, a girl who was an aspiring writer once who came to me and I, I refused to coach her because she wanted, she had the goal of a million books. And I, I said, listen, and she had no platform, no audience, nothing. I was like, first off, I don't know how the hell you sell a million books because I haven't done it. And two, I think it's a stupid goal. I'm like, I'm not going to help you do this because I can't help you accomplish it. And I think you're setting yourself up for failure. Um, and I'm willing to bet money that book hasn't even had a single word written. You know, it, it's yeah. and that's the problem is is where we lose this motivation is when we track our progress with metrics that we can't control. So part of the, the big first shift is uh, focusing on, on metrics that you can control. The next thing is that you want to look at it is, OK, am I improving? Am I getting better at this? Am I you know, getting better at, at the skill of what it is I'm dealing? So to this day, like I obsess over the craft of the interview. <clears throat> so when I go back and I listen to my interviews, I'm not looking for how great they sounded. I'm looking for what I missed, you know, like what threads did I drop or where did I, where could I have asked a better question? Uh, and I did that and, you know, I edited my first probably four or 500 episodes myself. Like I didn't have an editor. Um, I did everything oh, yeah. myself for a long time. That was invaluable because it forced me to go back and review my work. Uh, and I think that that's something every beginning podcaster should consider doing. Yeah. It's not good business to, do something that is, you know, sort of lower level labor or beyond your below your skill level, or it's not your ideal skill. Like my audio engineer wouldn't even be considered a low level labor. He's amazing. Um, at the same time, I'm not an audio engineer, and so there's sort of a balancing act. At one point, you got to let go of the things that you're just not meant to be spending your time on. So that's one thing is is looking at, you know, change the way that you measure your progress. Focus on mastering your craft. Um, and then you kind of have to have those honest, you know, come to Jesus moments like you did and say, okay, do I really want to continue this? And I think the perfect sort of litmus test for that is, do I actually enjoy doing this? You know, am I waking up every day looking forward to this or is this something I dread? Because you got to remember that uh, I, one, I started 10 years ago, two, I had a day job when I started this and it was just something I did. I had no idea that it would turn into a business. I just did it because I enjoyed it. Um, 
you know, at, at the time, everybody was saying podcasts were dead. I didn't start a podcast because it was a massive cultural trend. The reason I started a podcast was because um, there were two reasons. One is I, I like talking to people. But the second was, you know, one of the, the first guys I interviewed, I remember emailing him and saying, hey, I want to start a multi-author blog. Would you like to contribute? He wrote me back and said, no, that's a terrible idea. And you're an average writer. Um, and he was right. You know, and so I think that that's the other thing you have to consider is like, am I actually enjoying this? Am I getting good at it? Do I have, you know, go back to, you know, probability and possibilities? Like, is there a probability that I will have any level of success at this? Um, you know, but I think if you're enjoying what you're doing, it's a lot easier to keep going. Like, I, I couldn't tell you how many downloads our podcast has had in the last four weeks. I've not, I don't even know what the metric, I, I only look at metrics when I need to report to our investors. Um in terms of like once a quarter and that's where you know people get all trapped so if you're like sort of a beginning blogger beginning podcaster this is something i always say you know refreshing your google analytics isn't what makes you traffic twice an hour right (laughs) yeah it's like what are you expecting to find there nothing is going to change you know what's going to change that by doing the work that moves the needle on those things go write something worth reading go record something worth listening to don't do that yeah like i my advice is always if you're starting out stop don't even bother looking at your metrics for the first two months focus on doing the work because your metrics are irrelevant until they're worth measuring and early on they're not um so you know and and the funny thing is even later on you don't want to get into the trap because they're they're important but they're you want to make sure that you don't get so focused on metrics that you ignore the importance of mastery because i can tell you that most people if you ask them particularly people that have written books or whatever i couldn't tell you how many copies my books have sold because i'm not sitting around on amazon like refreshing my rankings all day i'm busy writing uh yeah and so those are the the things and then finally even if you accomplish some big goal, you can never rest on your laurels. You know, if you stop doing the thing that's gotten you to where you're at, you're done. Wow. I, I, you know, th- these ideas could have saved me literally probably hundreds of hours back, back when, well, when yeah. I was starting out. Cause I, I was that guy, right? Checking the, <laughs> checking the Wait. stats every couple minutes, hoping for like one more click or one more like, right. And I felt yeah, like, so here's the thing. It, it, the funny thing is, it's only it's easy to recognize this in retrospect because yeah. I was just like you, right? Everybody, you know, kind of comes to this advice and just go, "Oh, yeah, that's what I should have done." And if you did what you should have done back then, you wouldn't know what you do now. Uh, it's kind of like you date a person who's terrible for you, and you only realize that after the relationship doesn't work out. But the only way you could know what type of person is terrible for you is by dating a person who's terrible for you. Uh, you know, that's just kind of the way life works, unfortunately, is you learn you know, what you need from the things that you don't and you learn what's good from the shit that sucks. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the, the thing I'm, I'm really drawing out of out of these ideas on, on really motivation is, is that you have to stop really looking at the sort of long term external picture and all of these external validation things and really yeah. focus internally. Right. Focus on yeah, doing the man, work today, and- focus on enjoying it today. Yeah, I, here's the thing. Those are all, again, you know, like the other thing you have to think about is that each of these accomplishments, these so called moments in the spotlight, are all fleeting. They don't last very long. Yeah. You know, so, like, writing a book is another example where you spend two days promoting it, getting to stand on stages and shaking hands and kissing babies and doing all that shit that you do when you promote a book. Um, I haven't kissed babies to promote books, but, you know, who knows? Like, <laughs> maybe, I, I in the future. What, maybe in the future, yeah. 
but you know, like you don't see what actually went into it. What you see is the person, you know, putting their picture on Instagram or Facebook of, you know, them holding this finished book, but you don't see the two years of work and that's where they spent the majority of their time. And the thing is, even that two days is two days in the grand scheme of things. It's just one moment in the spotlight that eventually won't matter. You know, nobody will care at some point. Yeah, love that. Now, so how does this idea of flow fit into this? I know that surfing actually yeah. changed your life um, years yeah, ago. I, so. so flow is one of those things that um, a lot of people don't even know. Now, of course, we have you know the science. We have Stephen Kotler. We have people who've written about it and talked about it. But I think that prior to this information being so accessible, a lot of us had experienced flow. We just didn't know what it was, you know, that feeling of, wait a minute, like I'm in the zone, everything is just easy, you know, everything feels effortless. And it goes back to that idea of engagement, right? Do I find this engaging? Um, so for me, the thing that did it was, was surfing. And, and apparently, according to Stephen, uh, action sports are, are, you know, fitness is often the first gateway that people find to flow. Like, I just remember feeling this sort of invincible feeling in the water. I'm like, every time I do this, I feel better about my life, even though I'm, you know, 30 plus years old, living at my parents' house, unemployed, unable to find a real job. And yet when I go and do this thing, that doesn't matter. And some of my best ideas are coming from the time in the water. Uh, but the thing is that uh, activities like surfing, activities like snowboarding, they're rich with what Stephen calls the flow triggers, right? Novelty, risk, um, you know, challenge. And, uh, you're pushing your skills limit and, and, you know, activities like surfing and snowboarding, you're forced to be fully present and focus on the thing you're doing, because if you don't, you're going to eat shit going down a mountain or, you know, like wipe out on a wave. So I, I think that that's the, the thing that, you know, comes from it. But then what's interesting is how that creates this sort of ripple effect where it starts to apply to your work. And I think that people love the idea of flow. They don't love what actually is involved in getting to flow, which is funny because it seems to be like the theme of our conversation. People want, you know, the result. They don't want the work that comes with it. Um, and, you know, this is true in jobs, too. I, I just wrote this post about, you know, like this Facebook update about the difference between job descriptions and job titles. And everybody wants the title, but they don't realize what goes into the description. And so go look at the description because that's what you're really getting yourself into. Yeah. Like, you know, if you've seen the TV show Californication, you know, David Duchovny is like this you know writer who basically goes around getting drunk and having sex with like beautiful women. No writer's real life is actually like that, at least not mine. You know, it would be a hell of a lot more interesting if it was. You know, the real life is is sitting in a room quietly, and, and that's what you're signing up for. Uh, so that's one thing to think about. But then you have to think about the role that attention plays in this as well. And this is big because it's kind of the foundation of accomplishing anything. And it's more and more critical you know, in the world that we're in, because think about how distracted we are, like there's a thousand things competing for your attention. There's a new social network every day, a new app that everybody needs to be on, you know, a new bandwagon that everybody needs to hop on or some, you know, posted. And so a big part of that is creating an environment that is conducive to intense focus where it's, you know, what can you have one thing that you focus on for at least 90 minutes. And for a lot of people, that's fucking impossible because they've trained their brains so long to just pick up a phone in a moment of boredom to, you know, click on Facebook. Nobody schedules time on their calendar to screw around on Facebook. They just end up there. In fact, they'd be better off scheduling time on their calendar and made an appointment for themselves, you know, where, where they say screw around on social media. So that way it's limited to that time. Uh, 
So that's a big part of it is, is your ability to focus on one thing for an extended period of time. And then something that is a demanding activity, you know, what, what Cal Newport calls deep work, something that really pushes your, your skills to the limit, which is not, you know, like filling in boxes or loading content into a social media platform. None of that qualifies as deep work. The harder it is, the more likely it is going to be qualified as deep work. Like you and I having a conversation like this, this requires effort on your part. You know, it requires you to listen to what I'm saying and ask questions. That's deep, not, you know, sort of, the shallow, hey, let me just, you know, put some inspiring bullshit, you know, new age platitude on Instagram, uh, which is, uh, you know, and a lot of people think that that's work. They call that, you know, they think that, oh, I'm doing work, but they're really not. They're not doing anything. They're confusing attention with accomplishment. Um, so, you know, flow is, is one of those things. I'm far from the expert on it, but, you know, I, I think that it largely comes from those factors and being able to design your life in such a way that those factors are a regular part of it day to day. Yeah, no, really, like one thing that really becomes clear to me is, is you're really good at, at sort of consolidating different ideas from, from different people and different you know, researchers, psychologists, yeah. all of that into so, sort of a framework that, that Yeah, which is why I say I don't actually know anything. I'm just basically the compilation of other people's advice who are far smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> that's the best thing, honestly, isn't it? So uh, yeah. what, what does your own personal process look like of really, you know, I mean, you've, yeah. you've had all these 600 interviews now, right? You've learned all these lessons. How do you this put them together? This is a topic like I'm, I'm very passionate about right now, uh, which is, you know, personal knowledge management, like trying to make sense of all of this, because you're right. I mean, think about, you know, a thousand books, a thousand interviews. Like my brain is like this encyclopedia of just random shit. Like if you yeah. wanted to rob a bank, become a porn star, or run for president, I could <laughs> tell you how to do it or introduce you to the people who could teach you how to do it. Um, yeah. So I, I think that this is really a big part of it is capturing knowledge and, and you know, having uh, an organizational system for knowledge. So recently, uh, you know, uh, Mark, Andreessen Horowitz funded a new company called mem.ai, which is a uh, you know, note-taking tool, you know, kind of in the vein of like Notion, Rome, all these things. And mem is kind of, you know, they, they basically are Rome with a much prettier interface, like a much more user-friendly interface. I think they kind of bridge that gap. So Rome Research is one of those tools that allows for what they call network thought, right? Because the way that a lot of these tools work now is you'll see links between all the various types of information. So if you have anything that references attention, for example, you'll see every reference to attention that you've captured in your database. So I'll tell you the first thing, let me just kind of go through book notes and you know, I'll explain that first. So um, I cobbled together uh, you know, multiple methods to do this. So Ryan Holiday had this thing called the note card system that he's written about, which he learned from Robert Greene, where he goes through a book, waits for two weeks, and then he goes back on physical note cards. He writes down the quotes, the insights, whatever from that book, and he puts them into these file boxes. And those file boxes are so valuable that when his house got robbed, he literally was only scared of losing one thing. Wow. And it was those, because you can't replicate that thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, that's taken years and years and years of work. And he said, you know, often those cards lead to nothing. Um, but one of them is enough to build a career off of. So he wrote down the idea for The Obstacle is the Way four years before he wrote the book. And now that book wow. has sold a million copies. Um, so that's one thing is idea capture. Uh, but then when it comes to book notes, the thing that I do is I go through, you know, I'll read a book. Um, I'll wait a couple of days and then, you know, look at everything that I've underlined and highlighted. I mark up every book, like, you know, because we tend to underline a lot when we read and some people just underline everything. That's another big mistake that people make is, is that they just, you know, it's like those kids in college who highlight the entire textbook. It's like, <laughs> why are you highlighting the entire textbook? That's kind of stupid. I know because I did that. Because, you know, if you look at the way that typical nonfiction books are structured, 
you have sort of a point that the author makes at the beginning of a paragraph and a conclusion. And really the only important thing there is like the one or two sentences that matter. So you want to think about how to filter for relevance and relevance to you. Um, so then I mark each one with, you know, each one that I want to make sure that I, I capture inside of my, um, you know, databases with a, an asterisk, like each insight. Uh, and, you know, this is the case for books that, you know, podcast guests have written and then the books that I read out of my own interest. I do that for all of them. Um, so I have, you know, sort of this endless stack of books that need notes uh, because I, I didn't start this practice until recently. Um, fortunately, there's an app called Readwise that has made this a lot faster where you can actually just take a picture of your notes and it scans them using optical character recognition. Oh, yeah. um, so that way you don't have to like hand type every note because the problem with Ryan's system for me was that I didn't use it. So what matters is that you have a system that you actually use. So then comes the layer on top of that, which is Tiago Forte's work uh, he's done around building a second brain, which is, uh, you know, regardless of whatever tool you're using, you can do this in Google Docs, you can use do this in Notion, and you can do this in Mem, and that's to have an organizational structure for how you deal with information and knowledge. And so Tiago's method is, is what he calls PARA, which is, you know, projects, areas of responsibility, resources, and archives. And when you separate things into those categories, then you also know how to find things. This is a big thing that a lot of people waste time on. And I know this because I've seen people do it where you'll be sifting through your hard drive for, you know, whatever file or whatever it is related to some project. And so, you know, if you look at your physical world, in your physical world, you have designated locations for everything, right? Like your toothbrushes in the bathroom, your silverware is in the kitchen, your shoes are in a shoe closet. Yeah, nobody, you know, brushes their teeth in the kitchen sink and, you know, cooks their meals in the bathroom because you have sort of specific, you know, behavior associated with each environment. But you have locations that are designated for things. And the point is that you need to replicate that in the digital world somehow. Um, there are some great tools that actually make this a lot easier now. You know, some of the ones I mentioned, and, um, I'm advising a startup called charlie.ai. Uh, which basically just allows you to upload files, assign a tag to them, and then you don't have to think about them again, and you can find them whenever you need them. So I basically upload all my documents there now, um, and it integrates with Google Drive. So you're not – because even on a, a thing like Google Drive it, or Dropbox, you can sit around like searching for something forever and say, where the hell is this thing? You know, and, and so you need organizational systems for that. Then I think it really comes down to synthesizing that knowledge, which is really, you know, where we're at now, you know, like I can spout off all this stuff and connect these dots because you're asking me questions that require me to think about them. Um, but one of the best ways I've found to do that is to write about the things that you read. You know, it's so like almost everything I write is based on something that I've read or uh, based on a conversation that I've had with somebody that I've interviewed. And then as far as the knowledge from the podcast, you know, the nice thing is Rome has a, a way to integrate all of that as well, where I can use an app called Air. I think it's Air Audio. It's a podcast player where it'll automatically give you a transcript and you can actually save your highlights and export them. Um, Rather than having to transcribe the full episodes, you get like just the nuggets that you want, the ones that are the most important to you. And so I've been doing that. I'm not as diligent about that as I'm about books. And funny enough, I'm not a big podcast listener. In fact, I hardly ever listen to them. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I just, they're too slow for me. Like I, you know, I have way too short. I can read way faster than, you know, I, uh, it takes to go. Oh, you need like triple speed. and. <laughs> yeah. I listen to everything on 2X. I, I just, I don't know what it is. Like audio has never been my preferred uh, form of, of media consumption. Like I don't like audio books um, and I very rarely listen to podcasts, which is strange considering yeah. I'm out of doing it, but you know, um, but there are others who apparently Stephen Dubner who, you know, runs for economics, doesn't listen to podcasts. So I was like, all right, yeah. if Stephen doesn't listen to podcasts and I don't need to. <laughs> I also think that that's what's given me an edge as an interviewer is that I'm not hearing what other people are saying all day long. 
Yeah, do you feel like that? That's sort of where you can put that unmistakable side of of yours in there because you're not yeah. like seeing what everyone else is doing. Yeah, I'm pulling from different. You know, it goes back to diversity of inputs, right? My inputs and my context for questions comes largely from my life and the books that I'm reading, not the podcast that I've heard. You know, and I never listen to anybody's. If I'm going to interview a guest, I will never listen to another interview that you know they've done with somebody else because I don't want to ask. Like, I don't want Mike to be influenced by that, um, and so. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to developing a style of some sort. But yeah, this is, you know, knowledge management is something that I'm like really passionate about because when you think about just how much information, you know, especially for somebody like me, my brain is, like I said, an encyclopedia of just random shit. And are you like, I've always wondered, okay, what would it look like to export this? Like, how could I? And so I think the closest thing we have to being able to upload our brains to the internet are tools like MEM and, and tools like Rome where we can export the knowledge that we've captured because the, there's no point in consuming all this knowledge if you don't do anything with it. You know? yeah, so I mean, like, I, yeah. So I, I try to think of it, you know, I can write about it. I can apply it to my own work. And then you know, because you're consuming so much at some point, unconsciously, you start to like incorporate these ideas. You know, we're talking about, you know, ideas that have been sort of things that I've been exposed to over five, six years, like Ryan Holiday, I learned about the card system, Tiago taught me about second brain, and then layer on top of that, a book that I read called The Organized Mind, and that's how I can talk to you about this, because I think about it from context of each of those three inputs, and then apply it to my own life, um, or to my own projects, so, yeah. Yeah, I really love this this the systematic process to really managing your your ideas and your inputs, right? Because one of the well, the challenges that's the, that, yeah, that's that's the thing most creatives are missing. Like they they have this idea that oh, it's all just inspiration. It's like no, you need systems to make ideas happen. You know, like yeah. you really have to be like an idea factory. Yeah. What What are some of these other systems, practices, rituals that that you've started incorporating? Yeah. So you know, I think we've talked about note taking and and knowledge capture, right? So I think the other one that's really big is idea capture. Uh, nobody has a shortage of ideas. They just lack the discipline to capture them. So, you know, it's, it's true. I mean, when do you not have ideas? Um, so I, I basically have a, an editorial calendar in notion where everything is just, you know, captured, like whether it's an idea that's fully formed, whether it's a blog post, whether it's, a, you know, an idea for a project, that's, that's one is an editorial calendar of some sort where you just capture ideas. Another way to do that is with something called a, uh, spark file, Stephen Johnson, uh, you know, wrote about this there's an article on medium about this that's actually really good where it's literally just a chronological file where you dump ideas into it and then you review it once a week um and there's no structure to it the only structure to it is that it's organized by date and even if you organized it by week you could do that so that's that's one other thing and then finally with projects um i think it's you know i i found that this is a framework that comes from scott belsky's book making ideas happen which i found is by far the most effective way to move the needle forward on something and what he does is he basically breaks down any project uh into three parts which are the action steps like which are your tasks uh references which is any material related like handouts books whatever and then back burner items which are things that you know you might think about using later or you know not doing so let's just use for example creating an online course which is something we're doing right so we have action steps which could be you know write the first version of the you know landing page then you know write the email campaign whatever it is those are your action steps then if you're pulling from different sources or different material those are your references and then if you have an idea you're like yeah this might be useful but maybe not now then that becomes your your back burner and again the thing that i like about all these different ways of doing this is that each one is tool agnostic you can actually regardless of what tool you use you can create this structure uh 
Yeah. And then, and then the last piece of this thing is, is, you know, automating manual things, you know, like there's so much time wasted on bullshit. Like, so it's funny because I, this is a perfect example. You sent me that link, right? The email to yeah. me here. Mm-hmm. So I don't actually do that. Even though I use Zencaster, I literally push a link into Airtable and then it automatically sends the guest. And so I never have to write wow, the email yeah. that you wrote. And I've done that because the thing is, it, this is one of those things where, yeah, it, you know, there's a short email. It's like, Hey, here's the link that doesn't take up much time. But add that up over time, it's like a thousand small paper cuts and it completely kills your productivity. Um, so those are the, the the sort of layers of this. I mean, it's not, it's no one thing, but I think that if I were to give you a starting point of, for somebody listening to this, it would be start with capturing your ideas, then build something to capture your knowledge, then figure out you know a system to make those ideas happen where you know your ideas and your knowledge are going to be inputs into your idea factory and what your ideas are, are the output. So it's really about sort of thinking of yourself as the owner of a factory where you're basically moving you know different parts in and out of it. Wow, yeah, to, to me all of this really comes comes back to this this idea of yours of of creativity comes really from creating stuff, from from actually putting these systems into place, putting the habits and rituals into place and really becoming more intentional and deliberate about this this whole process. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so absolutely. I absolutely love that. Yeah. 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 Now on the show, we always love to celebrate failure as a stepping stone for really personal growth. So throughout your career, do you have a favorite failure? Yeah. Man. Well, <laughs> how long do you have? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, look, I started this whole thing because I couldn't find a job post business school. So like, that's the, the, the impetus for getting this off the ground was a, a massive failure. But I mean, even throughout the process, uh, the one that, that comes to mind um, is uh, planning a conference. So in 2014, we had a really great conference that uh, was a huge success by all accounts. We sold out in two weeks, uh, 60 attendees, $1,300 a ticket. And every time we tried uh, since, since then, we've never been able to pull it off. So mm-hmm. when we tried to do it in 2000, the, the following year, we had to refund everybody's money. And I, I think that what happened was that I, I just learned not to be emotionally attached anymore to things like that. Like I go in with this idea that, you know what, this might not work, uh, which is a Seth Godin new way of looking at things. Um, because once you come to terms with the fact that it might not work, then you can just get to work and do the damn thing. And you're not sitting around wondering if, oh, you know, you, you're not going to get caught on this emotional bullshit baggage that keeps people just sitting on their asses doing nothing. Love that. What do you think is the biggest thing that really holds people back from being creative? I, I think they don't believe they're creative. Uh, that's that's one. And then they don't do things that express their creativity, right? Everybody's creative. There's no nobody who's not creative. The only difference between quote unquote creative people and people who think they're not is that the ones who are creative express their creativity on a regular basis, whether it's through you know making art, whether it's through painting, whether it's writing, whatever it is. And just to be clear, you don't have to be good at any of those things to express your creativity. I mean, if you go back and look at some of the earliest things I did on the internet, they're ridiculous. You know, they're just for fun. Um, and I, that's the other thing is I think that if you find projects that have nothing to do with your work that are just for fun, those can be invaluable. I, in fact, I think those things have far more benefits than most people realize. So, you know, like I've been, I made a documentary film when the iPhone 11 came out, like I took the Ken Burns master class on how to make a documentary and then I made a documentary and right now I'm going through Annie Leibovitz's photography class and I'm shooting portraits of my roommates. Am I going to make a living as a documentary filmmaker or shooting portraits? No. But I'm having fun doing it. And the thing is, I'll learn something from it that I can probably apply to my work later on. 
Yeah, and that, that really highlights some, some of the key ideas that you shared before, right? Of actually doing stuff that you love, actually enjoying that, that whole process. Totally. And also building these, these really broad skills that, that might help you sometime further, further down the line. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about, you know, lots of great ideas, insights, tools today. If you could give our listeners just one challenge or one action step to take away from today, what would be that one thing? Um, I would say develop some sort of creative practice, uh, whether it's writing every day, you know, it could be f photography, journaling, whatever it is. And you don't have to spend a ton of time on it. Um, even if you spend 10 minutes a day doing that thing, that consistency will actually start to build momentum. And as you build momentum, doing that thing will become your identity and become your habit. And you'll be able to do it for longer and longer periods of time. Uh, that to me is really something. I, I think most people are unaware of just how much their behavior affects the results that they're generating. And so as, you know, as a byproduct, they don't focus on their behavior nearly enough. Love that. Now, before I ask my final question, where can people find you online? Uh, UnmistakableCreative.com and then, you know, uh, iTunes, Shopify, whatever it is, where podcasts are available, that kind of stuff. Awesome. Now, what does it mean for you to max out your life? Uh, that's a great question. What does it mean? I think that to me, that means that you have done everything that you have set out to do. And, and of course, we all have more than we could possibly do in a lifetime, but maybe not everything, but you've done all the things that you've set out to do that you knew were incredibly meaningful to you. Uh, and that's that's really what this comes down to is, is, are these things meaningful to you? It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what you think you know, for, for people who are listening. As long as these things are meaningful to you, then you will actually find that they are much more rewarding. But if it's all about you know validation from other people and all that bullshit, then you're you know not really going to be satisfied in any way. Love that. Srini, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. All right, guys. That's it for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you gained some valuable ideas, tips, tools, tricks, mindsets, belief systems that will hopefully inspire you to take your life to the next level. At the end of the day, guys, it's all about application. The only thing that's going to set you apart tomorrow from where you are today is how much action you take with those ideas that you gained. And so I really want to challenge you at this point to you know, not just listen to this passively, to not just consume this you know, passively, just thinking about other things, but to really take those lessons, take those ideas that you just gained and start applying them to your life. So really start taking action and sprinting towards those goals and those dreams that you have in your life. Now, guys, at this point, I want to ask you for a huge favor. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider heading over to iTunes and leaving a review as that helps me really grow the show and reach more people, impact even more people around the world. You know, if you have a family member, a friend, a loved one maybe that you think could benefit from this content, please consider you know, sharing it with them, forwarding to them, as that helps us really build a community of like-minded people that are all about maxing out their lives. Now, guys, with that being said, thanks so much for tuning in today. I really, really appreciate it. Stay strong and see you tomorrow.